Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. John had wrote about some horsemen that he saw coming, and they were the bearer of bad news, every one of them. Now, in the Assemblies of God... Not only do we believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, but we hold to a concept called the rapture of the church. I will tell you that this doctrine of the rapture of the church is under heavy attack today. Uh, Not only by people outside of the Assemblies of God, but even within the Assemblies of God, there are some scholars who are beginning to say there is no such thing as a rapture. We got this from the 1800s, and it's all a bunch of nonsense. And that's disturbing to me. There's a lot of debate about the timing of the rapture for those who do believe in it, some who believe in pre-tribulation rapture that we, who are now born-again Christians, will never have to see the tribulation times, the mid-tribulation rapture Christians who uh, believe that we'll see a little bit of it, but we won't see the worst part of it, and the post-tribulation rapture Christians that believe that we've got to go through this to be ready for Jesus. Now, that just kind of summarizes where people stand on it. Uh, But I will tell you this, even though there are debates on that, the fact of the matter is we do know that there are some difficult times that are yet ahead for this world. And whether we ever actually go through what they officially call the tribulation or not, we will at least, at the very minimum, feel the shock waves of that. And we see troublous times upon us even now. And it's increasing in intensity. Now let me read this passage for you to introduce you to the horsemen. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and then another horse came out, a fiery red one, Its rider was given power to take the peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Then the lamb opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Some translations have green, and it's fine. 
doesn't make any difference if it's pale or green or pale green. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, our traditional view of Revelation, it's a book of prophecy. I just watched a video the other day of a man from uh, one of the Christian universities that was explaining that Revelation, not one word of Revelation, is prophetic. He said it's just all allegory, it's all symbols, and it only means one thing, that Jesus wins in the end. And I I think he's missed a big point when he's dismissed all prophetic dimension from the book of Revelation because uh, he was just, what if he had been born in the time when Daniel had the vision uh, of of the, the great image? Would he have dismissed that as, oh, that's meaningless? Uh, so you can't just dismiss prophecy simply because it is full of symbols even because, or because it uses some uh, allegorical expressions. And I also heard a, uh, listened to a video, a very short snippet of a video this morning when a man was totally dismissing Revelation. And he said, once again, he said, it's all symbol, it's all allegory, and it means nothing. Now, wait a minute. In what, you, in what universe do you live where symbols don't mean anything? Or allegory is just allegory for the sake of allegory's sake, and it doesn't mean anything. It's all expressions to bring out some truth. That's what it's all about. You can't just dismiss it and say it's allegory. It means nothing. It means something. We have to find out what it means. And we may struggle to find out everything about Revelation, but we should not be afraid to make attempts to understand this. But if we take these prophetic uh, words in Revelation and we connect them with with the prophecies of Jesus, then he had this to say prior to his return, there would be such things as listed in Luke chapter 21. And these are the words of Jesus. He said, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity. And those are two very powerful words, anguish and perplexity. At the roaring and the tossing of the sea, people will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, let me just summarize what Jesus has said there quickly. He said there would be nations in distress. He said there would be seas and waves roaring, which we have to take that beyond literal oceans and tides and and surfs. We we have to understand that symbolically and prophetically, when seas and waves are used in prophecy, it, it often refers to people, nations. So when it says the seas... And the waves, the nations and the people of the nations roaring or they're, they're exasperated, they're crying out. Then it says people fainting from fear. I remember when I was a little boy, uh, preachers used to preach that as saying, uh, because the King James Version says men's hearts failing them for fear. And they said in the last days, heart attacks are going to be on the increase. Well, I'm not, I'm not debating that heart attacks are on the increase in certain segments of the world. It certainly is in the United States. But that's not what the prophecy was about. It meant their spirits fainting. They are wanting to give up. 
just because they see what's coming on the earth and they have no hope. And then, as the end draws near, Jesus said the heavenly bodies would be shaken or disturbed. And that is their behavior and their activity would have unusual impacts upon the earth. And these are just a few of the examples of world conditions and human conditions described by Jesus. And even Paul describes some conditions as well that will accompany the end times. And so we go back and look at the horsemen to understand what do they say uh, that is coming on the world from our time forward. This is what is going to happen in this world. First, we have a white horse rider. And we want to summarize this rider as calling him deception. This is somebody who rides a white horse and has a bow and goes forth conquering and to conquer. And some have mistakenly said, it sounds like Jesus. Jesus rides a white horse. But this is not Jesus yet. This is the fake. This is the fraud. He wants to ride a white horse too because he wants to be associated uh, with, with people believing he is the Christ. But the problem with this being Jesus, it's out of time. It's out of order with what is happening in the future. Jesus doesn't come, and then after that comes the famine, and after that comes the death, and after that comes... No, this is all out of order. So this is the coming of Antichrist, and all these other horse riders follow that destruction and famine and death. So he introduces this. He opens this up. And he is a deceiver. He's the epitome of deception. He gains the trust of many through his suave diplomatic skills. He promises things he can't deliver and has no intentions of delivering. He manages to make temporary peace with Israel, even though his ultimate goal is the destruction and annihilation of Israel. We do not know if Antichrist is in our midst even today, but we do know for a fact that many who operate in the spirit of Antichrist have, exi- have existed for centuries. John said in his first letter, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and he mentions Antichrist, and incidentally, this is just for your information, the name Antichrist, the term Antichrist, the title Antichrist, is only found in the Bible in John's epistles. It's the only place. He's referred to as a person other places, but he's only called Antichrist by John, and he's mentioned specifically, and then John broadens it out. Not only is there an Antichrist, he said, but there are many little Antichrists, or people who are bringing the spirit of Antichrist into this world. The spirit of Antichrist, he says, which you have heard is coming, and even now, this was in John's day, and it certainly is applicable today. The spirit of Antichrist even now is in the world. Does that not explain a lot to you? Not only is the spirit of Antichrist here, but people are operating in the spirit of Antichrist. We have people in key positions in the world operating in the spirit of Antichrist. We have wicked, despotic leaders in the world whose goal is to wipe Christianity from the face of the earth. That is the spirit of Antichrist. We're witnessing in this day and age a more aggressive hate campaign against Jesus Christ. 
than we have ever witnessed in the history of our nation. Hateful and despicable and disgusting and demeaning things are said about Christ. Things that should make the blood of any born-again believer boil to think that our precious Redeemer is blasphemed in such a manner. Yet, Christ forbids us to react with hatred and violence toward his enemies. The reason for this is they are deceived. And deception will certainly be a mark of the end times. And just as this white horse rider will be a deceiver and weave his deceptive magic over this world, so will many deceivers in the days preceding Antichrist weave their magic spell on willing and gullible followers. Now we Pentecostals, we cherish the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And along with that, we tend to magnify the gift of tongues along with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is where I have some, some advice and a warning. We have nine gifts of the Holy Spirit and they all have a time and a place where it is appropriate to use them. But one of the gifts that we rarely hear people talk about that is one of the more important gifts for the end times. Now I'm not saying that having the ability to speak in tongues is unimportant. Obviously if you're going to do any praying, that's a valuable gift. But not to the neglect of other gifts of the Holy Spirit that have their application. In the last days, perhaps one of the gifts of the Spirit that rises as the most important gift for us to have would be the gift of discernment. To know the difference between right and wrong, not only morally, but theologically, doctrinally. The gift of discernment. And we need that because with the approaching Antichrist, with the current presence of the spirit of Antichrist and little Antichrist who want nothing more than to deceive. It is highly important that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit to discern this is of God or this is not of God. Pray that God would give you the power and the gift of discernment. Jesus said deception would be so intense that false messiahs and false prophets would deceive, if possible, the very elect. I introduce you, number two, to the red horse rider. And let's call him destruction. It's logical that destruction follows deception. There is an order to this. The first rider is seen as carrying a bow and going forth to conquer. And the red horse rider will sweep through this world leaving a path of ruin in his wake. We see things happening in the world today that line up with the coming destruction. It's not hard to believe that we are on the precipice of not only difficult times, but the most difficult times we have ever seen in the history of man. The potential for massive destruction surrounds us. And I just want to take a moment to remind you of the dangers that we are facing right now, this very day. There are nine nations we know that are, to be in, that are in possession of the nuclear weapon. Russia, one of those nations, 
has been openly taunting the United States to test our military strength and resolve. China has issued warnings for the U.S. to stay out of their affairs as they're trying to deal with the rebellion that's going on in Hong Kong. And they told us in no uncertain terms, but out. You don't have any business here. North Korea has made it abundantly clear they desire the full attack on the United States with nuclear weapons. ISIS taunts the United States by beheading Americans on video. And we're told that ISIS has already infiltrated the United States and is busy plotting their next attack. And terrorists have already begun random beheadings of American citizens, some of which have never been reported by the news because they don't want you to know. We move on to the Ebola, which I don't say Ebola is the end of everything, but I do say it represents the kind of things that we're dealing with that we don't know what to do. You remember whenever I read Luke chapter 21 and it said nations in distress, distress with perplexities. And I said those are very important words. Jesus used that word, we translate perplexities, and what he was saying is nations will inherit problems for which they have no solutions. Now it seems like all along we've been able to find solutions to difficulties in this world. Decades ago when we had diseases that were debilitating to people, and we had the polio, and we had the whooping cough and the things, and they generated, uh, they developed Uh, medicines that would control and eliminate and virtually wipe these things out. Unlike the, the age whenever the Black Death, the bubonic plague swept through Europe, when they didn't have any solution to that. We have lived through the days when no matter what came along, our technology and our intellect enabled us to somehow find a way and start punching through this, until in recent years we started seeing things for which we had no solution. We started seeing the outbreak of AIDS, HIV. As the the scientific medical community says, we don't know. We don't know what to do about this. We start getting problems like like the, the threat of the Ebola outbreak. And they say, we don't know what to do. What if this, right now, they are predicting by January of 2015 for Ebola to expand to 1.4 million cases, swelling at exponential rates, ravaging Nigeria, now has been documented, not documented to be in the United States, a patient in Dallas, Texas, uh, that that the record flaw mistakenly allowed the hospital to send the Ebola patient home instead of keeping him quarantined. And then three days later he came back, and during that time they're, they're predicting and estimating as many as 100 people have now been exposed. If one person can infect and expose 100 people, how many can 100 people infect and expose? We're concerned about that. I'm not trying to get you to worry and fret. I'm not trying to get you to wring your hands and go, well, it was me. I'm just trying to introduce you to the fact that what the Bible said is going to happen is very, very real. 
And we're seeing the shock waves of that right now. We're seeing the, the, the waves that, from if, if it's happening in the future, these are the preludes to what's going to happen and getting worse. And then, then we've got the sun that's causing us trouble. It keeps belching out these solar storms and hurling them randomly into space. And some of those solar storms come dangerously close to Earth. And a direct hit could knock out our entire grid for months. The result would be so catastrophic with the electrical failure. They would close the banks. It would prevent you from accessing your money. It would shut down gas stations. It would shut down water purification plants, grocery stores, little everything that depended on grid electricity. And you say, yeah, but we have generator backup. How much gas do you have? Just until your fuel runs out is all the longer you've got generator backup. And if the solar storms don't get us, then our enemy nations have already figured out they could detonate a nuclear bomb over the United States and create the same effect as a solar storm and literally take down the power grid and everything electronic in our nation. That is a very real concern. We see the potential for revelation-grade destruction right upon us, but it all pales in comparison to what is being described here when the red horse rider has the power to ride through the earth and take peace from the earth and turn the world literally into a war zone. It's coming. Number three, we have the black horse rider, and we can call him drought. The rider holds scales in this vision, and he cries out and says, a loaf of bread for a day's wages. You can figure that out. This is famine. This is drought. This is inflation gone crazy. What is your day's wages? Would you like to go to the store and find a loaf of bread for the price of your day's wages? Would you not think this is, I can't have any bread anymore. Can't afford bread. If in this day and age we have a median income of people making $100 a day, you're thinking of a $100 a day, uh, uh, loaf of bread. Well, it's not intended to give precise prices. What it, it's intended to do is to express drought and famine and those things that at one time we thought was just common staples become luxuries. And it says don't hurt the oil and the wine. And the reason it says that is because uh, the oil and wine doesn't need the grapes, uh, the, the olive doesn't need any cultivation. And therefore it will always be there as a basic staple for the poorest of the poor. But those who are accustomed to having the better things, they're the ones that are going to be paying out of their cash of riches and wealth and their holdings to continue to live the kind of lifestyle they want to live. It's just going to start cramping everybody because they don't want to be reduced to a meager uh, living like the poor people of the world do, that we can get by just on the very basics. Well, everybody's going to be getting by on basics then because it will be, you will not, if you could buy it, the fact of the matter is you won't be able to find it anymore because these things are going to be so scarce. Here in the United States, we're talking about drought. We know by history, and some of you I've also lived through this era about the famous dust bowl that struck the Great Plains states. I lived in California for about 12 years. 
And we had a lot of transplants in California in the area where I lived that were former people from the Great Plains. They called themselves Okies. So I'm not being derogatory. They, they, they were from Oklahoma. They, their families left there when the Great Dust Bowl hit. And what had happened in Oklahoma is they went in and began to cut down the trees and farm. And the problem is trees were nature's windbreak. And without the trees, then the, the plains winds picked up and then uh, they began picking up soil and, and picking it up here and depositing it several hundred miles away. So you no longer had soil. The Great Dust Bowl. And then after World War II, as they began to reclaim this land and tame it and figure out what do we do with this, they, they, they drilled down and they found water. Uh, aquifers. We've got aquifers in many places in the United States. And the great Ogallala Aquifer that, that runs from South Dakota clear down to Texas, this huge underground reservoir of water, they drilled down and they began to pump this water up and people were able to move literally uh, into the wilderness and have water because they were drawing from the, uh, the aquifer. And then they pulled it up and they, and they watered their, their crops. And what took thousands of years to fill is now being emptied in a few decades. And they said, if we continue to use the water in the uh, Ogallala, Ogallala Aquifer at the current rate, that we will no longer have any water to pull from that resource by the year 2025, which is not that far away. We're draining it at, a, at an incredibly fast rate, much faster than it's able to refill itself. Now, from that, we understand in history what a drought means. We also understand the conditions exist that we are very close for, for uh, all practical purposes in seeing massive drought again in the United States. Many of the aquifers that have served uh, our nation throughout the past decades have already dried up and they moved on to others and we are depleting our supply. We've seen famine. We've seen famine in other parts of the world. And it appears as though if things don't change course, we're on the course of famine again just in the next decade or two. But this writer is not just describing what we have done to ourselves. And this is one clarification I want to make. Because there, we're, we just don't have this, this prophetic account of this is how man destroyed himself. These are judgments of God. These are not how man caved in on himself. Even though we're doing a pretty good job of wiping out ourselves. When it comes time for God to bring judgment, what we're doing to ourselves is only a small taste of what's going to happen when God begins to bring his judgment on the land. So I mention these things only to introduce us to what it feels like to be under those kind of conditions and then multiply it times who knows what. And say, but when God starts his judgment, it's going to be worse than anything you've seen in the history of the Dust Bowl. It's going to be worse than anything you've seen in the pictures that we've seen in third world nations where they have no fresh drinking water and little children are starving. It's going to be worse than anything because the judgments of God will bring an intensity to this we've never witnessed before. Drought unlike anything modern man has ever known. 
because it's caused by the hand of God. Number four, the pale horse rider, death. And the Bible says it is given to this rider power to kill by these means. The sword, which is war. Famine, which we've already studied. And now we are introduced to two new creative ways. That whenever death rides through the land, he will use plagues, diseases, which brings to mind Ebola. If it's possible for something like Ebola to devastate the world, then certainly we can get our mind around what it means for death to ride through here and for to create its own plagues. We don't know what to do with this plague. How are you going to know what to do with a plague that is caused by the judgmental hand of God? You won't have a clue what to do about that. I go back to the Black Death that swept through Europe. You realize it killed almost 100 million people in four years, 25 million people a year. 68,000 people died every single day. And the plague usually killed its victims within 48 hours of having contracted it. We cannot even imagine that kind of horrendous impact on the world. But plagues will be coming upon the world. And then the fourth thing... And the unique thing is it says by wild animals. And this is quite interesting. Because right now I feel pretty safe getting out of my house and into my car and coming down into the church and getting out of the car and into the church. I feel pretty safe walking around the hospital. I've, uh, it's a mile around the hospital and I like to walk that. I feel pretty safe. There's some human animals I'm scared of, but not a lot of wild Animals from the lower kingdom. And the Bible says by wild animals. Now, we've lived in California. We know what it is for a mountain lion to show up in town once in a while. We know what it is for people in urban areas to go out jogging and get attacked by a mountain lion. That happens in some places. We know what it's like. I, I've, seen, I've seen bears in the wild out in California. And, and of all things, while I was pastoring in California, uh, and the Royal Ranger Group wanted to go camping. I have all these things in my brain. You've got bears and lions. And what's going to happen with something possessing the wild beasts of the world is suddenly it's not going to be safe for anybody to step outside their house because something is possessing the wild kingdom. They've gone mad. They're entering the cities. They're attacking people. What, is, what has happened to the animal kingdom? They used to run from populated areas. They used to avoid human contact. Now they're turning on the humans because death is riding through the world. And by the hand of God, the animal kingdom is turning against the humans. And brings a whole new dimension we can't even, we've never seen before. Can we even imagine it? It, it rivals the, the worst sci-fi movie you've ever seen or heard about. 
things are just going crazy in the world. And in an era like this where the Bible says, at this point, at this point, death will have power over a quarter of the world. 25% of the population of the world. And these are the things that lie ahead for us. While we're waiting for the coming of the Lord, there is that gap between here we wait and then when he comes, that these things are going to happen. And as opposed to people who think life is great and things are going to get better and then one day when it's just as good as it can get, Jesus is going to come back. I don't know which Bible you're reading. He's not going to get better. It's going to get much worse, which is why you need a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is why you need to be able to put your trust in him that no matter what comes, you know you are in God's hands. That's why you need Jesus. You cannot cope with the problems of this world or the things to come without the power of Christ in your life. It's a no-brainer. But before we see him arrive and the world sees these tribulations, the four horse riders are about the tip of the iceberg. What we see from them are bad enough. I doubt that the godless world even knows what lies ahead. They're oblivious. They wake up every day thinking, where is the promise of the Lord? All things continue as they were since the beginning. They have, may have some concerns about the troubles we see brewing around us, but they don't care. And they don't realize what's coming. And strangely enough, in this sixth chapter of Revelation, if you read on down through the chapter, it gets down to the end, and then it describes that there will be rich people, great people, small people, insignificant people, people from every walk of life, that whenever these things begin to happen and these four apocalyptic horsemen bring their death and destruction and their doom and their famine and their deception. The Bible says they will run out and hide in the dens and the rocks of the mountain. And out of complete misery, it says they're going to cry out for the rocks to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. And I do not understand that. Because we're not encouraging you to go and hide from the wrath of the Lamb. We're encouraging you to fall on the mercy of the Lamb. To call out to Him and say, God, we repent, forgive us. But their hearts are so hardened that they could not repent. They only wanted to curse the name of God and hide from Him. Crying for death if the rocks could just fall on us and crush us and relieve us from the misery, but not falling on the rock. And those are the four horsemen. But the 19th chapter tells me of one more horseman. And it says in the 11th verse, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Oh, we have another white horse. And he that sat upon it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, righteousness, Get it? Righteousness. People who are trying to blame God don't understand. He's righteous. He's true. 
He's faithful. People trying to say, well, God's not fair. You don't know God. God is nothing but fair. He's nothing but righteous. And in righteousness, he does judge and make war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he had, it was clothed with a vesture, a coat, a cloak, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. And just so you understand, that's you and me. There we are in the book of Revelation, his army. I'm his army. I'm a part of that army. I'm not crazy about the horse thing, but I'll cope. And his army, they were on white horses clothed in fine linen and white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. What does that mean? That means that Jesus comes and he says, I'm done with all your nonsense protests. I'm done with everybody griping and complaining about the way you want it. It's my way or the highway now. I will rule with a rod of iron. No questions asked. He treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The true Christ, the genuine white horse rider, not the deceiver, not the betrayer, not the liar, not the wicked one who brings death and destruction upon the righteous, but the righteous one who brings death and destruction upon the wicked. The one who brings final judgment. He rides the white horse. He leads the army of heaven. He brings a swift end to the battle of Armageddon, defeating Antichrist and his army. This is the ultimate showdown. Loud-mouthed imposter with all these nations of the world behind him, shooting off his mouth and going to battle against the faithful and true. And all he does, the Bible says, he defeats them. He defeats them by the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. He has a sword. He doesn't have to use it. Now, all my life, people, I've always wanted to be on the winning side. Back to my grade school days when we would pick up teams and do relay races out on the playground. I wanted to be on the winning team. When we'd pick up teams and play flag football on the playground, I wanted to be on the winning team. But I was not an athlete. They picked all the athletes on one team and they left all the scrubs on the other team. And I was always on the other team. We got into junior high. I always wanted to be on the winning team. High school, I always wanted to be on the winning team. I didn't always get on the winning team. So I can't help but tell you how excited I am when I read about this and I realize for once, finally, after all these years, I realize I'm on the winning team. I get to ride back with the one who wins. There isn't any question about it. Isn't any question about it. It's not even a contest. And whenever we come down there and Christ opens up his mouth and destroys them by the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming, I'm going to jump up and say, look what we did. <laughs> Hello, the winning team. 
And no matter how we may struggle here and now, no matter how it may look like the godless are taking over this planet, no matter how hopeless it may seem at times, where it doesn't even seem like life is worth living, and we are swamped by the enemy, it isn't over until it's over. It may feel like we are fourth quarter, down 14 points, less than two minutes to go, but I'm telling you the game isn't over. And I just watched a video by a Princeton University professor, a conservative, a Christian, who made a speech for a prayer breakfast, and then they did an interview after him and asked him about his speech, because his speech was, in this prayer breakfast, he said, it's Good Friday for the Christians. Now you think about that, the application. I don't know why it was called Good Friday. The name is misleading, but we're talking about the day that Jesus was crucified. But he gave this speech to the Christians. He said, it is Good Friday for the Christians. The world does not tolerate us. We're okay as long as we believe what they want us to believe. And as long as we don't tell what we believe and keep our mouth shut, they love us. But they hate us if we speak up. They hate us for what we believe in. They hate us if we disagree with them. He said, it's Good Friday for the Christians. Good Friday, just like whenever Jesus, just a few hours earlier, they were, they, he, was, he was entering into Jerusalem on the donkey and they were putting the palm leaves out and they were shouting Hosanna and a few hours later they were crucifying him. He said it's Good Friday for the Christians because it hasn't been long ago that we were appreciated by the world. Let's ask the Christians what we ought to allow for decency on TV. Yeah, the church used to be uh, there to, to, to give advice about what was permissible on TV. They appreciated the presence of Christians and Christian values. They used to be invite Christians to come and pray over public meetings and public gatherings. I've been invited to go pray over city council meetings. They used to be appreciated. Just a few hours ago... We were the, 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 the beautiful child. We were the, the, the gifted child. We were the, the preferred child of the world. And just a few hours later, they're shouting, crucify them, crucify him. He said, it's Good Friday for the Christians. But then he said, but I want to remind you that just like Jesus, Sunday's coming for the Christians. There is hope. We will not despair. It isn't over until Christ puts every enemy under his feet and sets up his kingdom in this world. Those four horsemen people, they don't worry me because I know the man on the fifth horse. That's the reason I'm not worried about the first four. Things are going to get worse before Jesus comes. But I'm so glad that I can tell you I'm on the winning team. Are you?